This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Ottavia Zappala, and this is episode four of Missing Alyssa. If you haven't done so already, I suggest you listen to the previous episodes before you continue. So the search of Michael Turney's home revealed he truly was in possession of identification in the name of a Gary Wayne Morris. We, we found a fraudulent ID and a fraudulent social security card. Fraudulent social security card was under the name Gary Wayne Morris. There was also a, a fake Arizona driver's license with Mike's picture on it under the name Gary Wayne Morris. So of course detectives get to work to see if these two individuals actually existed and whether they were dead or alive. They discovered that they are indeed real people but that they died many years prior to this deadly confrontation with Mike Turney. Charles Parsons committed suicide in Texas in 1993, and Gary Wayne Morissetti, that was his exact name, died of cancer in Illinois in 1987. You must be wondering how Michael explains that. Well, he says he did kill two men, and they were carrying IDs on them that said those were their names. He suggests there is a possibility that they were carrying false IDs, Michael Turney possessed a private investigator license at that time. Could that have put him in a position where he would have been able to get information about these individuals? But the main question is why? Why would he falsely implicate himself in two murders? One could imagine that if he managed to make people believe that he killed two men in self-defense, it would prove that his story that union members killed Alyssa was true. It would explain what happened to Alyssa, take the blame away from himself, and at the same time, justify a violent attack against the Union Hall. The whole story would go full circle really nicely. Well, that could be a good way of getting his, his guilt out without even admitting to himself that he did it. I'm not saying it's a well-thought-out plan. Well, because he must have known that you were going to trace back uh, the date of these people's death, and obviously it was much prior to Melissa's disappearance, so not, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I'm, I'm not saying it's a well-thought-out plan. But there is some kind of indication there was a, an attempt to concoct or create supportive evidence in this. Michael's paranoia isn't limited to the union. Not by a long shot. He claims that the Phoenix Police Department as a whole are after him. For starters, they fabricated information in order to obtain a search warrant for his home. They were angry at him, he claims because he threatened to sue them and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for defaming Alyssa and for not searching for her. The police are frustrated by their failed two-year task force against him, he says, so they decide to prosecute him vindictively. It's not just the police who conspired against him, but the government of the United States as a whole, claims Michael Turney. Once again, we're going to reenact his statements throughout this episode. Here is just a small quote from him on the subject. You can sit back and say I'm paranoid all you want to, until you've dealt with the United States government at a level like I have at various times. Project 100,000 for the Vietnam War woke me up really quick. How far will the government go to lie when they screwed up on something and do something that kills innocent people? I could keep going with more examples, but I think you get the point by now. 
But how did Michael get to this point in his life where he believes everybody is out to get him? It's my understanding that when my mother died, my father became the man that I know versus the man that my brothers knew, if that makes sense. Um, he was obsessed with everything, extremely paranoid about everything um, you could think of. Like I said, he, um, he had a Fry's card, but he wouldn't register under his name. He registered under Tom Jones. He didn't want the government to know what he was buying. It was that type of thing. And I, don't, I think some of that comes from being old school. A lot of that comes from being a cop. But then there is that paranoid, massive, depressive, whatever that mental illness is in there, it definitely would shine through. I mean, we would have a, a gun on the couch under a pillow that I knew about. Um, However, there is evidence pointing to the fact that the paranoia and conspiracy theories began well before Barbara's death. This is Barbara's sister, Teresa. So I know that Barbara was spent, had spent a lot of time talking to my grandmother regarding her marriage to Mike. And um, from everything, my understanding was is that there had been enough chaos and crisis in my sister's life being married to Mike that her plan had been she she'd gone back to work and her plan was to get herself financially in a place where she could afford to take care of her kids and herself and uh, she told my grandmother it was her plan to leave Michael at that point really well just shortly later wasn't but just a couple of months later when she found out she had cancer And so her thought, thinking then was to do whatever she needed to do to get through that and continue on with her plan. We, at that point, she had no idea that it was as terminal as it was and that her plan would never get to be carried out. So it wasn't a good marriage? Um, no. Mike is one of those drama-driven kind of people. Um, tends to be a bit narcissistic. No, tends to be a lot narcissistic. Um, and so the, some of the drama that he was kind of creating with the union, he at that time was in the electrical. Michael Turney is a dichotomy. On one hand, he's undoubtedly intelligent and knowledgeable in some fields. He helps his kids with their homework, takes them to Disneyland. He's the cool dad to their friends, the one who picks up junk food for everyone and buys them beer. On the other hand, the investigation and subsequent federal charges against him reveal a much more sinister side to him. By many accounts, he is calculating, a conspiracy theorist, anti-government, a liar and a manipulator. My brother saw him as Superman. He was a Boy Scout leader. He was a coach for all the sports teams. He was a great dad. Um, other kids in the neighborhood would actually come to our house because it was a better environment. So it was, I mean, he was their Superman and I totally get that. He was my Superman too, but in a different capacity. Um, but he would do everything. He'd work 50 hours a week and come home and take care of the kids and clean the house and get back up and do it again. He would do anything for his family. Mike, um, I guess you could say that he suffers from narcissism. And narcissists tend to create narratives and, and dramas where they are the, the hero slash victim. And 
you need to have a bad guy in, in these narratives. And the union is a convenient bad guy, I guess. Although he doesn't attempt an insanity plea, during court proceedings, he has his psychiatrists and therapists testify on his behalf that he suffers from several mental illnesses. However, a mental evaluation ordered by the court revealed that he was fit to stand trial. So in other words, not ill enough not to know the difference between right and wrong. But opinions on whether he is delusional or simply a lying manipulator vary greatly among those who know him. If he did it, I do not think that he thinks he did it. She's talking about whether or not her father murdered her sister, by the way. I think mm. he has convinced himself 1,000%. And the family has talked about this so many times, but he just, he is convinced that he didn't do it, even if he did, which obviously nobody knows. But yeah. he will never come out and say he did it, is our concern. We just think that will absolutely never happen. Like I said, I, I could literally, I, don't, I could be pregnant with twins and put a gun to my head and say, Dad, if you don't tell me right now, I'll blow my brains out. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, I didn't do it. I have nothing to tell you. Right. Because he'll never, he'll never sacrifice that image of himself for anyone or anything ever. He will always be the underdog ex-cop that did the right thing, whistleblower, everyone's against him, and he's just trying to be a good guy. Sarah appears to contradict herself here. On one hand, she says he doesn't believe he did it, meaning he's delusional. On the other hand, though, she says he would never sacrifice his own image by admitting to a heinous crime, which would implicate a concerted effort to cover the truth. A lie. To me, it's obvious that she struggles with this question herself. For detectives, there is no doubt that Michael Turney is intentionally deceitful and is very much aware of the difference between reality and his stories. For instance, Michael Turney has always told people that he served time in Vietnam. The investigation actually revealed that he was never there. His military records show that he was stationed in California the entire year and nine months that he was in the Army. Michael sticks to his story, however, even during his ABC News interview. When John Quinones confronts Mike with the evidence that he was never in Vietnam, he answers, I certainly was. I would have known that if I wasn't. But then why are there no records to show that? asks the 2020 host. Beats me. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. Maybe you should go check the records with, um, Congressman Brown. He was involved in exposing Project 100,000. So was the Inspector General. Where's all those records? In the manifesto, there were at least 20 pages devoted to his time in Vietnam. Where he claims that he went to Vietnam, saw fraggings, was captured by the Viet Cong at some point, and he rescued his unit by punching and killing a Viet Cong soldier. Um, this is all fabrication. This is all not true, but Mike is so adept at creating deception and convincing people that there are many people who think that he think that he was a Vietnam War veteran. In court, though, during an evidentiary hearing, Mike calls himself to the stand and is sworn in to testify. Judge Susan Bolton asks, "Were you in Vietnam?" He replies, "No, according to my military records." It says I wasn't there. She insists, 
I'm asking if you were. And finally, Turney says, no. Someone who's delusional, their delusions aren't convenient. So when there was a consequence, when Michael Turney knew that he actually could be charged with perjury, he told the truth. But Michael is smart enough, says Detective Summershoe, to always insert a little kernel of truth in his stories. He also fabricates as much supportive evidence around his story as he can. To illustrate this, Detective Summershoe refers back to the story of Mike having killed two Union assassins. During uh, a confrontation with these subjects, he claims one of them shot him, but he was wearing his bulletproof vest, and that saved his life. We found a bulletproof vest that had a, a bullet strike on it in his house when we did the search warrant. He also says when he went through the person's pockets, he found a phone number that was associated with the, um, the Union. In his safe was a torn piece of paper with a phone number on it. Now, do I believe that uh, these things actually happened, that Mike killed two Unionist assassins? No. But he felt the need to create supportive evidence for this deception. Going through the court proceedings, I also read that Mike actually says there is no evidence that he killed two men in order to discredit his manifesto and to support his story that it's a fictional writing. That indicates he knows he didn't kill those two men. If Michael staged all of that evidence, the bulletproof vest, the note with the phone number on it, to support his Union assassin story, that reveals a high level of deceit and manipulation that is in contradiction with the image of a delusional, mentally ill person. I'm staring at this huge pile of papers on my desk, thousands of pages of court proceedings and police records that I have read through in an effort to get a better insight into Mike Turney's complex mind. During his trial, he's intimately involved in every aspect of his defense. He fires his public defender and chooses to represent himself in court, to go pro se against U.S. attorneys David Pimsner and Mike Morrissey. While detained, he files hundreds of motions, putting up one hell of a fight in court. He asks the judge to be released back to his home while he awaits trial. He says he can't get the proper medical care he needs while incarcerated. He calls his doctors to the stand to testify that without his psychotherapy, his paranoia is going to spiral out of control. He swears he is not a flight risk, mainly because of his serious medical conditions. But Judge Susan Bolton orders him to remain detained. He requests a gag order against the media, who, back in 2009, were painting him as a child molester and a murderer. The judge denies his request, saying that he voluntarily agreed to go on national television about this case. Before sentencing, the government calls Dr. Aaron Nelson, a forensic psychologist, to make an assessment regarding Michael Turney's risk for future violent acts. Dr. Nelson was a research director of the Columbine Psychiatric Autopsy Project. She says, I have significant concerns about the risk for future dangerousness in this case. We have an individual who has demonstrated a long history of rigid, controlling personality type, who has written extensively about his plans for violence, made allusions to violence, and more so than just writing about them, gathered and accumulated the means to carry out those acts. He has a long history of externalizing blame, perceiving injustices, feeling that groups have conspired against him, and from where Mr. Turney sits, in fact, it would feel as if that has actually played out. 
Fast forwarding seven years after that statement, it's chilling to read Dr. Nelson's predictions now that Mr. Turney's release has actually happened. To make her assessment, Dr. Nelson compiles a list of risk factors that, by themselves, are of little value, but whose cumulative weight and interaction renders significant. Some of the risk factors in this case are things like owning many weapons, being very litigious, having an interest in the military, being a white male, his anger, his mood disorders, his chronic pain, and a history of threatening people and of making allusions to violence. Michael Turney petitioned the court to allow for an independent psychological evaluation to counter the testimony of Dr. Nelson. And the court authorizes this. But Dr. Carlos Jones ends up validating the government's argument that Turney is a threat to the community. It is unclear why Mike entered this report into evidence, since he could have chosen to suppress it. So the defendant calls Dr. Harrington, the psychologist that had been treating him prior to his arrest, to try to counter the testimony that he was a risk to society. But Dr. Harrington refuses to do so, saying that she didn't think so at the time, but that then again, quote, there was a whole part of your life that you weren't sharing with me, so I had no idea about the arsenal that was being built up in your home, end quote. According to the government, Mike Turney was preparing to attack while under the care of psychiatrists, doctors who had no idea what steps he had taken. Judge Bolton makes the following statement in the matter. If history is a predictor of the future, psychiatric treatment has been largely ineffective in changing your obsessions and your paranoia. Although he has no prior criminal record, Turney has had many interactions with the law. In his lifetime, he has sued and threatened to sue a great number of people, federal and state agencies. He says it himself to ABC News. That's the way to do it. If you want to get something out, the best way to find out what the real truth of it is, through discovery, is you file a lawsuit. During my visit to the United States District Court for the District of Arizona, I found records of at least 11 lawsuits he had filed. And that's in the federal court alone. Asked by one school friend what her dad did for work, Alyssa replied, he sued people for a living. Sarah remembers a Christmas shortly before Alyssa disappeared, where they suddenly had a lump sum of money. My dad received a settlement there um, to an amount he has not disclosed to me. Um, and he just always said it was from the government. It was his big lawsuit from the government. Um, and I, I mean, I remember it was, we had some really great memories there. We went from being, I mean, you know, pretty, pretty poor. And we had food and clothes. We had what we needed, but none of the luxuries. Um, and he got that settlement a few days before Christmas. And um, he just went crazy. And Alyssa and I got tons of presents. We spent entire Christmas Day playing our brand new Nintendo 64. Um, it was just, it was one of the best memories probably with Alyssa. As we're walking around the neighborhood where she grew up, more childhood memories surface, several of which include disputes, lawsuits, and settlements. And this is, um, this is where I got hit by the car. I didn't know that one. You didn't know that story? No. Um, so my mom was still alive. I was three. That's, I have this scar on my face. That's oh. what it's from. Um, yeah, I was walking across the street to that house. Um, there used to be kids named, there's a fat cat over there, sorry. Um, I was walking over to that house, um, right across the street. Um, they had a pool. We were going to go yeah. swimming. I was in my swimsuit. 
and I was walking across the street by myself, and um, there was uh, the newspaper lady. You were so little. I was so little. Um, the newspaper lady was weaving from side to side across the street, and she clipped me with the mirror of her um, car. So I have the scar on my face. Did your dad sue her? Um, he did. I of ended, course. I, I, of course he did. Um, he did not get as much as he wanted. I, I ended up. I sue for much less than that. Exactly. But I remember there was a certain point where I wanted to buy my first car. And he said, well, we have this money from your settlement from your car accident. Do you want to get your scar removed or do you want to buy your first car? I said, I'll buy my first car. If it's true, as they say, that we attract what we fear most, then unfortunately, Michael Turney did just that. For decades, he has feared being persecuted. He was paranoid of being targeted by the government and eventually became the target of scrutiny and prosecution by no other than the United States government. Coming up next on Missing Alyssa. Well, she did write it. We, we had a handwriting analysis and it is her handwriting. The letter, we don't know when it was written, under what circumstances. And the letter doesn't seem to really reference the events as described by Mike uh, of that day. I think he realized that she was coming to California and he knew that that girl, Alyssa, was going to tell me what he was doing. And he knew that I would turn around and call the law on him and he had been gone. And the tape I saw, he had Alyssa laying down on the couch with just her shorts on with no bra, no shirt on, her breasts exposed. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. Voice acting by Ben Reichert. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.